This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This show is brought to you by our show sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. We try our hardest to take care of our bodies and constantly follow fitness trends. But what about our minds? Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. There's a misunderstanding of what therapy is. It can be whatever you want it to be. For me, it's a safe space where I can untangle my mixed feelings and talk through my emotions and ultimately be able to go about my day with a stronger and clearer mind. When everyone is struggling with something, there's no more shame. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and 21 and over listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash holly. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash holly. Hello, I'm Holly Ramsey. Honestly, I'm probably best known as Gordon and Tana's daughter or one of the bunch. Now, I'm hoping to become known for being me, for being honest, for being real and a lot more relatable than you might think. Hi, I'm Tally. I'm a psychotherapist. I've had my own mental health battles from the age of about 14 until 22 when when I went into treatment. Now I'm nearly seven years clean and a therapist hoping to give back a bit. 21 and Over explores mental health, family dynamics, creating your own identity and what it means to be a 20-something in today's world by sharing our own experiences and struggles with some amazing guests. My co-host Hallie and I not aim to only normalise our many mishaps, failures and setbacks of being a 20-something, but also celebrate the growth that they bring. It's time for our weekly check-in. Each episode, myself and Tally will do a check-in. Especially when I'm at therapy or even just speaking to a friend, it usually starts with, Hey Holly, how are you today? To which I respond, I'm great, doing super well, everything is good, everything is great. Bullshit. It then takes me about 30 seconds of awkward silence, and then I actually open up and let my guard down. I'm going to work on not doing that, so now at the start, we will check in. So I guess I'm going to ask you, Holly, how, how your week's been? What is, what is a highlight and perhaps a low point of your week? I would say that the highlight of my week has been that my puppy Truffle didn't wake up at seven this morning like he has been recently. And then my low would be I did a Zara order this week and about 70% of the clothes did not fit, which didn't make me feel great. I was definitely angry at myself for that extra piece of garlic bread. And the order was actually meant for a new pair of jeans. Uh, And it wasn't until it arrived that I realized I didn't even order one pair of jeans. What would you say were the highlights and lows of your week? 
So I guess the highs for me this week were, um, you know, making a new pasta bake recipe and perhaps having a lion. Um, and the low I'd say was, was the anxiety around the end of the lockdown, the, the, the potential end of the lockdown soon. We've been so used to, we've, we've had to be so used to sort of keeping ourselves to ourselves and not interacting with, with others. And the, the thought of having to now interact and be social is filling me with, with anxiety and, and a bit of dread because it's a big change. I'm very much with you on that. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to having to make up an excuse to cancel plans. I know. Well, we've all got so used to a new way of life and now it's going to have to change again. So mm. I think, I think it's, you know, it's, I think, if, I don't think I'm alone in, in the fact that, you know, the anxiety around this big shift, basically. Definitely not. <laughs> so this being the first episode, Holly, I'm sure that the listeners uh, and I would like to know a little bit more about your journey, your mental health journey, what has got you here and what has perhaps inspired the podcast? I think people think they know a lot more about me than they actually do. Um, growing up in the public eye, I guess I've always portrayed a different image mm -hmm. than what was actually going on. And now I'm ready to speak more about my mental health journey and just show the real me rather than what I think people would like to see. Was there a pivotal moment that you decided that you'd like to to share that with the world? I would say probably about six months ago, I realised even on my social media, mm. I wasn't being that real. I was definitely posting what I thought people wanted to see. Mm. And I have continued to do so, but a bit more trying to be a bit more realistic. Mm as I can, but it's hard trying to find the balance of um, still sticking to what I think people want to see and posting what I want to post. Yeah, it's frightening being vulnerable and it's frightening showing sides of you that perhaps you haven't shown. Definitely. And I think in a weird way, I've got to mourn the loss mm. of the kind of perfect image that has been created that I've tried to create Absolutely. on social media. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about when, when the journey started, when, when your mental health journey began. I would say that my mental health journey probably began when I was in secondary school. I remember having prolonged feelings of being quite sad and feeling just generally quite empty, as if I was just going through day by day and not feeling much joy. Um, but... I was just a teenager, so I thought that this was completely normal. Um, the idea of depression was quite a taboo. Um, no one really spoke about it at all. What age were you? This was between, definitely started at 13, but then it went away and then came back when I was 15 or 16. Um, so it was very confusing having these feelings and then not having them and then them coming back. So it didn't feel normal, but right. I thought it was normal. <laughs> Sure. And, and I wonder what the fear was perhaps of expressing this to someone, you know, to, to someone close to you. I wonder what was perhaps holding you back from, from expressing your feelings. I think the fact that it kept going away. So I thought mm. this is going to continue. And I was also very confused as to why I had these feelings because I'm very fortunate. I've got an amazing family mm great siblings who I get on with and love and adore my parents my relationship with them is great so I felt very guilty yeah for yeah. feeling like this yeah and I think that's a really good point that when we have these feelings these feelings of sadness or these feelings of, of 
you know, bouts of depression, we, if everything externally looks good, we presume that we are not allowed to feel these, you know, mm. these kinds of feelings. So it's, it's, and it's very conflicting, especially if they go away, especially if they come and go, as you were saying. Definitely. Or they would always come and go. And mm. it was very strange. And it was almost like I was predicting when the next one would come. Mm. Um, but I've definitely always struggled with anxiety. I was probably born with it. I mean, I remember being very young and wanting to do a ballet recital or just feeling very intense nerves, mm. but I did it anyway. Um, but I never knew that it was anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought I was shy compared to my siblings. Mm, okay. Um, and I also found, I remember being in school and everyone older than me constantly telling me how they had the time of their lives in school. They enjoyed it and not to stress on a math test because no one's going to ask what you got when you go for a job interview. Mm. Um, and I didn't really enjoy school much because I was creative. I have always been into fashion, um, always been into art. I was not academic at all. Um, compared to my twin, he was very clever and he worked very hard for it. Um, so I was laughed at by my peers for not being ac academic because I was in the lowest set. Um, it was quite funny because I was one of the only students who was in the lowest set for everything. Yeah. Um, so that became quite comical. Right. So I kind of just laughed it off as well and didn't mm. really think of it. Mm. Um, but I was definitely referred to as the creative student or the creative sibling. Um, at first I hated that but now it's such a blessing. It's hard when we get given these labels as well at a young age because, you know, or, or, or our experience is sort of slightly minimized, right? You were enjoying being creative and it was seen as something that was perhaps wrong. You know, you, you weren't in any of the top sets and and that's minimizing your kind of experience in a way. Yeah, I've always kind of struggled with that bit of finding that identity mm. um I knew I always wanted to go into fashion but it didn't feel like I could do fashion as a subject um mm. the school I was at at the time didn't even offer textiles as an a-level but they offered art but you could specialize in fashion so it was okay it was confusing yeah. um yeah so then you so from from the ages so that was from your sort of early teenagers going up to you know late teens and then and then what happened in your sort of in your journey um so then I still had all the mixed feelings mm. but I just kept them to the side sometimes they would take over everything else but I was pretty good at hiding them and managing them because they were still so confusing to me I then moved on to university where I studied fashion design um, it was a very intense course, but I knew that because I love fashion. My first internship, I did a 15 hour day and I came home and dad was like, what are you doing? You're crazy. You can't work like that. <laughs> and he was saying that he hadn't worked like that since he was training in Paris. Mm. Um, and I was like, dad, I, this is what I love doing. The thrill of seeing a couture garment come together was genuinely like, like nothing else. Um, so I went to university, um, studied fashion design and I loved it. It was a very intense course. Um, but by the second half of the first year, I 
was being affected by my PTSD and I had no idea that this was happening. Um, I was going out a lot. I was missing class because I'd been out. I was going clubbing way too much. I wasn't enjoying myself at Mm. all. Um, I was struggling a lot more, but didn't notice because I would just think that it was just a hangover or Mm. just a lot of work. Sounds to me like you were trying to block out feelings all those ways of of distraction and numbing self definitely I mean when I would study I would channel anything I was feeling into Mm -hmm. my work and then I would go out and kind of just release it so I didn't have any time to actually think about what was going on um I then left university after my first year because I was admitted to the Nightingale Hospital as an inpatient for three months So just quickly for our listeners um, outside of the UK, what is the Nightingale Hospital? The Nightingale Hospital is a psychiatric hospital in London. And that was where I was diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety and depression. And since then, I have been in therapy up to three times a week. I now have these diagnoses that I carry around with me. Um, And it's confusing and I'm trying to channel that and take control of my narrative Mm. and use that to make something good I wonder if it was a relief to be given these diagnoses because you know as 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 you said it was very confusing for a long period of time and you didn't understand where these feelings were coming from and perhaps what they were what they meant Mm. and finally having someone you know sort of tell you what they were in a way definitely it was like a huge weight was taken Mm. off and almost kind of something that I could explain why I was acting like that um I mean when I was going out lots when I was in school no one understood I didn't understand why I was going out but I was still doing it and now I can see it's because my PTSD was bad and I was really struggling yeah or if I was having a low period mm. within my depression then i i can now see why mm. it makes more sense and and you mentioned your ptsd and i wondered if you'd feel comfortable sharing what that ptsd was was as a result of that was a result of two sexual assaults when i was 18 okay and you never told anyone about these experiences not until a year afterwards that sounds heavy you kept that all to yourself for a long time I did I just buried it in a box in the back of my mind and just tried to get on with everything as best as I could until it got too much yeah Mm. so after you had you you said you went into treatment you were diagnosed with PTSD anxiety and depression how have you you know continued life because you know I know going into treatment well I've done it many times and I know what it can be like then to come out once you've had a prolonged period of time not in 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 life you know you 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 sort of take a step out of life for a second you go and you look at yourself under a microscope and it's quite daunting it's scary so I wonder how after that you know you're you're about in treatment what it's been like for you how you've been able to manage to be able to manage your anxiety how you've managed your depression and your PTSD Honestly, it's definitely a work in progress. Mm -hmm. I think something that's so special to me about 
21 and over is that it's very much a journey. I'm not saying that I'm cured. Everything is in a box in the corner. It's going to be a journey. There are still going to be bad days. There are still going to be great times and good days, but I'm just going to deal with them as they come. Um, I guess more to answer your question is my family has been an amazing support. Mm. Um, having three siblings and now an extra one has been great. Um, it's brought me closer to them mm. in many ways and the same with my parents. I guess the thing is, is it's a real, it's a real example of what happens when we get vulnerable and when we tell our truth. And even though it, it's very scary to do because of the fear of not being heard, not being seen, when we finally get to that stage where we feel we, we don't have no other choice but to be vulnerable and to be seen and accepted for that is, is such a relief. And it's a great example that when we are vulnerable and when we are authentic, it gives others permission to do the same. Definitely. And I think, again, as I was growing up, I remember people telling me in my 20s, I had the time of my life, I could mm. be an adult, but not having to do all the adult things. Well, for me, it's so different. Mm. I have three diagnoses and I've been hospitalized. So I'm just trying to navigate a different path that isn't spoken about at all. Mm. Not many people I know have dropped out of university. Not many people didn't do that well in school compared to their siblings. So it's very much a journey and it's kind of navigating your own way through it. Mm. It's, it, it's, it's frightening though, because we never know how we're going to be received by others. And I can certainly relate to that. Um, going, coming, you know, back out of treatment and everyone has continued with their lives as if nothing's happened yet our world or your, you know, the world that we knew has suddenly changed so drast drastically because we've had a whole, we've had intense therapy. Mm. We've had intense, you know, looking at our lives and, and the responsibility we need to take for our lives, you know, all these things that perhaps you wouldn't ever have thought about before. So I think it's, it's, it's really brave. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll inspire others to be able to share you know, their, their truths. I hope so. I mean, it's definitely come along with a whole new load of responsibilities. Mm. I mean, I've lost friends. Um, so it's definitely a journey, but I hope by speaking out, it can help other people speak out or ask for help and even just talk to their friends and just try and normalize the conversation around mental health it's not always what it seems on the outside mm. and I so relate to that because you know from my own experience people saying what I I didn't think that there was anything wrong with you and you know you were saying it, you know you you have a close relationship with your family and you've grown up in the public eye and everything has seemed to be great and, mm. and normal and actually somehow that can really exacerbate the pain because you think that you need to be a certain way mm. and if everyone else thinks this then I must you know I must conform to that I must behave in a certain way it's not always what it seems and I think that's why as you were talking about social media it we've got to be very careful about you know what people put on mm. and actually what is really going on for them important how you said that the world continues moving on whilst you are in treatment because I remember when I came out of um hospital I I went in during summer 
and came out in autumn. And even just the change in the trees for me was kind of, mm. how is everything normal right now? I've just been away for three months, mm. but everything has moved on and it was quite a big shock. And it was just readjusting in the world that was still the same, but just looked different to me. Well, everything does look different, not just literally, but sort of metaphorically, mm. you've suddenly had everything change in terms of well what the the main question I guess for me was well what am I going to do now you know the fear of well I've just I've felt so safe in such a bubble Mm. for for a prolonged period of time and now I have to leave and I have to go back into a world which was really frightening before um and so that is it's it's scary and to to need that continuous support is very important, right? And I, and you were saying that, you know, you, you still, you're you still in therapy? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember coming out of hospital and I had just left university. My friends had just started back at university. Um, my twin was going to marine training. My older sister was in her new job and my younger sister was still in school. So everyone had a plan Mm. and I love having a plan and I had such a plan um I knew what I was going to do I was going to go to university I was going to get an internship I was going to work in the industry and then I was going to have my own brand it was so set in stone and now there's a huge curveball um and it took me a while to try and figure out what to do I think that is such a good point in in the lesson that plans change we I think the sort of society pressures of what do you want to do when you grow older, sometimes what you want to do when you're 14, 15, 16 changes when you get to 20, 21 and things happen. And I think, again, this is a great example of of actually sometimes we need to put our our mental health first. You, You actually made a choice, Holly. You made a choice to put your mental health first. You didn't have to do that. You could have continued, you know, in, in a lot of pain. So it's also a, an example of, of it not mattering if, if things change, plans change all the time and allowing ourselves to not giving ourselves such a hard time. If, if that happens. Definitely. I mean, from such a young age, like you said, 13, 14, you have to choose what you want to study for your GCSEs. Mm. And then after that is what you want to do for A level. So then you can prepare to, for university and I was so angry when my plan like, got messed up. I was mm. so angry. But now I can see it is a part of a bigger picture. But back then I definitely couldn't see that. Oh, it's so hard to see when you're in it and you have this really great plan. It's funny, I was in exactly the same situation. I was in, P- I was in fashion PR <laughs> and I thought that that's what I was going to do forever. And the idea then actually that that was not meant for me. That wasn't right for me. My first internship was at Vogue in the fashion cupboard. And I thought that was it. That was me sorted. But, you know, when I, the, the, the fear when it, when I realized that it wasn't was daunting because then what, Mm. right. Then who, who was I, if I wasn't my great idea that I'd had for so many years. And that's what's scary. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Personally, when I have a lot on my mind, I'm unable to carry out simple tasks and focus on my work until I have a clearer mind. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. 
It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free of charge to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash holly. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states. We have a special offer for 21 and over listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash holly. That's 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash holly. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey with mental health and a bit more about yourself? As I said, I've had... I, I suffer. My, my mental health journey started when I was about 14, 13, but quite similar to you, Holly, I had always been anxious. I'd always felt like I needed to be around people. I always felt something bad was going to happen. And when I was 14, I, I went to school, um, I went to a boarding school and I developed um, an eating disorder. And then, far, you know, doctors involved and all that. And um, when I was 17 I went to my first treatment center uh, it was more like a hospital it was in Windsor and it was a very unpleasant experience because I didn't think that I had a problem I went into treatment when I was 17 um, that was more for the mental health stuff uh, I would you know I was I had been self-harming I had been my food was was still not right but I was definitely depressed mm-hmm. everyone that I was surrounded by by my friends, like my 17 year old, 16, 17 year old friends all seemed to be having such a great time. But I felt so different. I felt so different. And I felt like I always needed to prove something to them. I I felt I was always trying to fit in and it was very unnatural. I think when I went into treatment at 17, it was also, it was, it was a relief, even though it, it wasn't, I really didn't enjoy it because I didn't think, as I said, I didn't think that there was anything wrong. Um, but I then, I left there and actually what was really happening underneath was that I had a quite a severe um, addiction to alcohol. That started quite late. It started when I was, a, well, I say late, you know, in comparison to some other people. It started about 16 and I remember when I first drank, I was at this party and it was this feeling that I could finally be myself. I finally didn't have to worry. And when I went into this treatment center at 17, they had kind of asked me what my relationship like was with alcohol. And I'd said it was fine. So when I was allowed out on home weekends, I would go out clubbing and I would get very drunk. And this continued for a while. And my addiction escalated in, into other substances. And I got to the stage when I was 22, where, as I said, I was in the sort of beginnings of my career or what I thought was going to be my career yeah. in PR and fashion. And I hit a, a rock bottom where I thought to myself, I, 
I can't continue like this. I like, I, I, I don't want to live anymore because it was so painful. The hard thing is still for, for me is that when I was told, but it was so unobvious, you know, what do you, what do you mean? You, you had a problem with alcohol. What do you mean you were really struggling? The majority of my peers didn't really understand the severity of, of the pain I was in. And so I, I got to the stage where I either had to seek help or, you know, it was the end. And I, I remember reaching out to an old therapist of mine who I'd seen, who I'd come and gone from so many times because I thought I can't be asked to go and talk to you. <laughs> and he, I, I was desperate and, and actually it was a sort of gift of desperation, right? I was so desperate. I knew that it couldn't go on like this. And um, he said, okay, I will help you if you promise you're going to have to commit to not drinking for 14 weeks. And I thought, great. So I went into this treatment center and I'd already planned 14 weeks afterwards, this massive party. <laughs> I was like, great, you know, 14 weeks easy. And it was about two weeks into this treatment that I realized that I, I had a problem with, with substances, but generally my nature was, was very addictive. And it's interesting because that was just a symptom of, of my underlying feelings, my depression, my anxiety, the way I feel things on such an intense level, right? right? You know, when you were talking about feeling sad, but it, it, I, I get that on such a sort of intense level whereby I think that, you know, when you're feeling a feeling and you think it's never going to end. It takes over you. It takes over. And I couldn't understand, you know, friends would go through similar experiences or friends would feel rejected, but it wouldn't have nearly the same impact as as I would feel it. For me, it was like my world was coming to an end. Mm. And luckily, after sort of few months in, in treatment, I realized that this was as a result of having this sort of, you know, having being, you know, an addict or having an addiction. But actually, the, the substances, the behaviors, the eating disorder, which is all under the same bracket as, of, of addiction, mm -hmm. that is simply a way to change. It's using external things to change the way I feel internally. And I think then when I finally went into treatment, took me a couple more times to really get stuck in. I, I then, you know, once I put the drink and drugs down, my eating disorder came back because it was just another way to try and control my feelings. You it's know? another addiction. Exactly. It's another addiction. And I finally, I, I, I thought, okay, well, I put the drink and the drugs down, but suddenly all these feelings came up and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I, I then had to go to hospital and I went to South Africa for four months. That's when the sort of beginning of my life started, really, because I, as you were talking, you know, when you go away for that prolonged period of time, suddenly you come back and you've completely changed. But also I felt like I was, I was raw. I'd been stripped back. Everything I'd been exposed. And suddenly I had to start again. I, I started again and then I retrained. I started my training as a psychotherapist. And um, it's not to say that I was cured. I, I really want to stress that, that I came back from treatment and I was suddenly better because it's something, as you were saying, it's a process. I think back to being, you know, a young teenager or, you know, even even in my late teens and early 20s, I really didn't like myself, mainly because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what I, you know, I shouldn't know what I should like. And you have all these sort of external pressures coming, you know, society or friends or family thinking, oh, yeah, that would be great. That would be great. But I had never really taken the time because of these sort of anxieties or these fears to look at who I was, what did I like? You know, this classic example of people always saying to me, oh yeah, so what's your favorite color? And I'd say, no, what's your favorite color? Because I really had no idea. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is, this 
my mental health journey is, is an ongoing one. Mm. It's still something that I, I'm still in regular therapy. I, um, I'm in fellowships for my alcohol and, and drugs. And I, you know, it's a, it's what I have to take it one step at a time. I still feel all these feelings, right? <laughs> they don't just go away, but I guess it's given me the ability to talk about them more. And I've now, I, I like, I think I like to think that I pride myself in, in, being able to talk about feelings and not them not being taboo. I mean, I, I again, I, as you were saying, Holly, I've lost loads of friends. My whole friendship group had to change because I, can imagine. I went from being the fun one, the party one, to then being completely different and having a completely different outlook on life. I think that's the main thing. It's an ongoing journey and it will be forever, I think. And actually that is something which was very hard for me to accept that it's not always going to be good. I'm not always going to feel happy. I am going to feel low. I am going to feel sad. I am going to feel all the feelings that humans feel. But I also have to let go of the control because otherwise it's going to, you know, going to be a miserable existence. Wow. <laughs> I can relate to so many of the things you said and for me, I find it amazing that you're now at the other side and you work at the rehab center. Yes. So I work at the rehab center that I was in, the the the, the second one that I went to, I, I now work in. And it's that was a really um, big moment for me when I hit sort of six years clean, no, five years clean. And I started to work there um, because when I was there, you never you don't ever think that it's going to be okay. You know, when you're in that state of real pain and you never believe that things are going to change. So yeah. And you stripped back from everything. Mm. I mean, I remember when I went in and whenever I would go out back home for the night, I was kind of like, I'm a different person. I, mm. It's quite scary because no one really knows what it feels like unless you've been through that. Mm, absolutely. And also trying to explain to someone who doesn't, it's not necessarily to someone who hasn't been to rehab, to someone who doesn't experience, who hasn't experienced pain, because everyone's obviously experienced that. But mm. it's very hard to articulate to someone who hasn't been on that level of anguish, because a lot of the time I was met with, but you, you're fine. Everything's fine. You've got such a great life. Like, what are you what's the matter? Everything's going to be amazing. Look at what you've got. Be grateful for what you've got. And that's all good and well. And, and I absolutely, you know, gratitude is a very important part of it. But when you're in that dark place and everything's dark, mm. whatever anyone says and whatever you've got materialistically, friendship wise, family wise, it doesn't make a difference. It's got to come from, from inside you basically. And it's literally like everything's in black and white. You see mm. no joy in such small things. Absolutely. And that's really what the painful thing is. I can remember being in these beautiful places and being so low and everyone was like, isn't this incredible? And you can't see that, you know, everything is, as you say, you know, everything's just, just dark. So, yeah. I find it so inspiring that you are at the other side in terms of you're now helping other people. And I find that very inspiring. I mean, I know, especially with PTSD, because I didn't even know that was a thing for sexual assaults. I thought it was just from being in the army or violent situations mm. um I remember I did a lot of research on it and the same with depression because doing the research kind of helped me understand what was going mm. on and I just find it so amazing that you're at Thank another you. level 
Well, it, you know, you say that, but it also really helps me when I listen to my clients. For each session, I'm not thinking about myself, which is actually a relief because the rest of the time <laughs> I'm, you know, very self-absorbed. My head's like a washing machine. I get so many thoughts all the time. So when actually, you know, my it's for me, my clients also help me because it, it gives perspective, right? I'm just very grateful for the journey because it's got me to where I feel most like me and, and actually being able to celebrate myself and be completely authentic with those who accept me rather than continually trying to chase mm. a group of people or a certain situation that actually would never make me feel good about myself. So that's very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Behind the Post, which is where we will go back and look at recent social media posts and discuss what was actually going on behind the scenes. So I have your Instagram up here. And for those listening, um, I have chosen a post where Holly is wearing a sort of skimpy short, <laughs> skimpy outfit, um, a yellow cardigan. And it's sort of as if there's like a collage of you, um, there's sort of three versions of you taking a picture of yourself. You know, I was interested in this because you look amazing and um, it's a very cool image, but actually perhaps... You know, there was something else going on, as you said, behind the scenes. Yes, there definitely was. This was a trend that was going on at the time. It was more of a collage trend. A lot of people were doing it and it is quite cool. So I put on a cardigan, which I've seen over Instagram a lot recently, which I love. And I ended up taking these photos in the morning when I had just woken up. So I hadn't eaten anything. I wasn't bloated. My skin mm. was relatively clear. Um, and I felt pretty good about myself and then made them into a collage, which I said I would never do. Sent them to my sisters and I said, guys, I did it. I've made the collage. And then it sat in my camera roll for a while. And I actually posted it one evening. I had just had a tie takeaway. I wasn't feeling that great because it was a January evening. It got dark quite early. The weather was bad. I was bloated. My skin wasn't clear. And I have, I always have like a weird expectation. If I post something where I look good on the outside, mm. it will make me feel a lot better on the inside. Mm -hmm. I've been there. It's a very dangerous game, that one, <laughs> because we post when we actually don't feel good about ourselves. But the reality is that actually, even if we get the validation that we're seeking, it doesn't actually make us feel good in the long run. You know, it's that look to make ourselves feel better but actually sadly the only person that can do that is is ourselves right definitely I had that empty feeling mm. I posted it and I was in the cardigan which I loved and has been very popular so I was like okay that's gonna make me like mm. maybe attract more people and mm. then it was a collage so that was like a trend I guess so I thought that would get even more people to see it and I posted it and I was just kind of didn't really know what to do afterwards mm. I was kind yeah. of I had this expectation that it would go out on Instagram and I was going to feel absolutely fine. Everything was going to be great. The bloat would go away. My skin would clear up. But it didn't. Mm, it never does. Unfortunately, no. it's one of those things, the amount of times that I've, I've perhaps posted a picture where I then actually feel so much more anxious because I've mm. posted it because it's not getting the, the reaction that I was expecting. 
Um, but it's really interesting because I look at this picture and obviously you look amazing, but there was actually pain going on when you posted it or perhaps even by the, the sort of the narrative that was going on whilst even creating it. It was this beating yourself up all the time. Oh, I'm not going to do this. I shouldn't do this. I don't want to be like this. Yeah. It's, and then the problem is, is it's never good enough. Mm-mm. No, even looking back, I'm kind of, I'm annoyed I posted it because I mean, I'm trying to make my social media more authentic mm. because it doesn't help me putting out images that aren't actually real. And it probably doesn't help people who follow me. It probably gives them a re- an unrealistic expectation mm. of what I actually look like because I do not look like that 95% of the time. And it's scary trying to become more authentic and more real and trying to post what I want to post rather than mm. what I think people want to see. So, you know, other than obviously trying to make yourself feel better, what was it when you posted that, do you think, that you were looking for? Was there anything in particular you were looking for? You know, was it the likes? Was it comments? Was it, you know, people affirming you? What was it? I don't know. Mm. I think that's why I didn't feel anything after posting it. Um, I try not to read the comments. Um and I don't look at who's liked it. Mm. Um, I have all those notifications off because otherwise I will obsess over it. I've done it in the past and it was unhealthy. So I've just had to turn them all off. I'm still trying to figure out what I look for when, when I post posting. something. Because sometimes I'm like, oh, this post hasn't got that many likes as the other one. Why is that? So then I look for reasons why they're not matching up. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. And that's a really, again, that's such a painful place to be because we make it mean something about ourselves. Mm. I think what I'm trying to do on Instagram is, is not post when I feel bad about myself. Right. So, you know, that is one rule that I'm trying to follow that when I'm feeling a little bit low, because it just makes me feel even more secure. I've realized it makes me feel even more secure and, and I don't have a following like you do. So it's not even the same, but it's, but I guess it is in some way it is the same because it's that sort of dopamine hit Mm. and it's that looking for external validation to make ourselves feel good where actually what we should be doing is soothing ourselves looking after ourselves being gentle with ourselves and not giving ourselves another opportunity to beat ourselves up because any opportunity to beat myself up and that's you know it's like I've hit the jackpot definitely (laughs) I definitely relate to that I mean I I want to have more fun on Instagram I mean Truffle my puppy he has an Instagram page that I post and There is so much joy Joy. in posting Mm. on his page because all the accounts that he follows are dogs Mm. and all the accounts that follow him are primarily dogs. So the feed is just full of dogs and I just love scrolling on there. So whenever I do need a little bit of joy, I will just go into Truffle's account. (laughs) There's so much less pressure. So much less pressure. Finally, there's less pressure and it's not about, oh my God, what do they think that I look like? It's because that's, you know, it's stressful yeah, to say if, the least if he's bloated no one cares <laughs> <laughs> amazing Tali I think this has been the best way I could have seen this first episode going I've really enjoyed speaking with you and I felt very comfortable well thank you Holly so much for for providing me the space as well and I'm so excited for for the journey in the future episodes well thank you for being so honest and for allowing me the space to be vulnerable with you. I think even though these experiences were negative and formative, I am taking the setbacks into my own hands, taking control of my narrative 
and I will be bringing the audience of 21 and Ever along with us on the journey. I'm very excited. Me too. And thank you very much to our listeners. We want to hear from you. So send us a DM on Instagram at 21 and Ever with Holly or email us at 21 and Ever at studioramsey.com. Subscribe to 21 and Ever with Holly Ramsey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.